Well, that song by the bravery reminds us that we all want something to believe in. But what is worth believing in? You know, I used to ask that question when my parents would take me to church, mainly on Easter and Christmas. I would sit there as a kid and I remember thinking, how do you know? (laughs) How do you know Jesus is the son of God? How do you know this stuff isn't just made up myth? And that particular church, they didn't really welcome doubts and questions like we try to welcome, you know, here at Gateway. And and as a result, no one could answer my questions. And after a, a number of years, I left and actually went far away from God. Now, obviously, something changed that got me here, right? And between now and Easter, what I would like to do is is walk us through some of the amazing things that I've discovered, this thread of hope that I believe God has woven throughout history in the form of prophecies recorded in the Bible so that those truly seeking God could know only the creator could do something like this. And, you know, if you're listening to this as a a skeptic, I'm so encouraged that you're here. And I want to just encourage you to stay open-minded as well. If you stay open-minded, I think you will see incredible reasons to believe if you want to. Now, having said that, if you don't really want to believe, you'll find reasons not to. And probably nothing will convince you. And that's worth considering as well. If you already do believe, I hope that this will really strengthen your faith as we head up to Easter. And I hope it'll inspire awe and wonder uh, in you at what God has done. Now, when I talk about Bible prophecies, I'm not talking about the, you know, the, the kind of whacked out into the world's going to happen in 2012 stuff. OK, that's usually what makes headlines, though. You know, for instance, one uh, author of Bible prophecy wrote about um, the uh, the sign of the beast, you know, the number 666, and declared that that's actually about visa cards. You didn't know that, did you? Yes, he says the V and the I stand for the Roman numeral 6. Uh, the S in visa actually correlates to uh, the sixth letter of the Greek alphabet, and the A corresponds to uh, the Babylonian number 6, 666. So, visa, it's the beast card. Crazy. <laughs> Uh, but if you want to be sure, just, you know, get a Capital One MasterCard and you'll avoid the tribulation. <laughs> Another writer of, of, that made the headlines about Bible prophecy wrote this, and I'm not making this up. The building blocks for the new temple in Jerusalem have already been constructed and numbered, and they're being stored right now in the basements of Kmarts all across the United States. Just waiting for the great blue light special of all history, right? Okay, so when I talk about Bible prophecy, I'm not talking about future predictions about the end of the world. All right, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how God claims to have foretold hundreds of times over what will happen in actual history. History that we can verify or not and say, yep, it looks like that happened the way God foretold it or not. And this actually is how God declared we could know it's him. It's the real deal versus just make-believe. In fact, all the way back in about 1500 BC in Deuteronomy 8, uh, Moses explains this. The Lord said to me, I will raise up a prophet for them like you from among their people and I will put my words in his mouth. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded is to be put to death. You may say to yourselves, well, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, 
Now that's how you'll know. So 3,500 years ago, 1500 BC, God says through Moses, here's how you know a prophet actually comes from God. Only God knows what's going to happen in history. So don't just accept anyone in my name, test them and see, you know, if, if what they claim actually happens because there are poser prophets out there. And the, you know, the, the penalty for posing though was extreme, right? The death penalty. But throughout the centuries, you see God telling through the prophets, this is how you'll know. In fact, you know, he, he even calls out false gods. Take a look at this in 700 BC, Isaiah 43. God says through Isaiah, which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say it's true. See, he says, this is how you'll know. God says again through Isaiah, Isaiah 48, I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them and I made it known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass for I knew how stubborn you were. You've heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? Now look at this. God claims to be speaking through the prophet saying the way you're going to know it's actually God is that I alone can foretell what's going to happen in history. And this is what we're going to see is exactly what has happened. And I hope you realize and see just how amazing God is and how loving and how much he wants us to know him. He wants to be known. And so he's, he's threaded this hope throughout real history so that people who do want to know him can know and, and, and discover his heart for them, his love for them. But there's something interesting here that you need to note. He doesn't force himself on us. In fact, God remains somewhat hidden and we have to be willing to seek him to actually find him. That's important to recognize. Now, before we dive into the specific prophecies of the Messiah that we're going to be looking at over the next four weeks, there are, uh, there's a critical question I find skeptics ask. And it goes like this. How do you know these Old Testament prophecies were truly written down before the events of Jesus' life? In other words, how do you know they weren't doctored up after the fact? And that's a legitimate question, right? And an important one. And we're going to see many reasons over the next few weeks that um, that doesn't make sense, that they were doctored up after the fact. But let me give you a few right now. So how do we know these Old Testament prophecies we read were written before Jesus' birth, which we think is, was in about 6 BC. Well, first thing to understand is that the Bible is not one book. It's actually a compilation of 66 books. 66 books written by about 40 different authors over a period of about 1,500 years. And the 39 books of the Old Testament were written probably between about 1,500 BC and around 400 BC. Now, how do we know that? Well, first of all, the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew, the uh, language it was originally written down in, into Greek in Alexandria, Egypt in 250 BC. That version is called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's well recorded in history that a copy of the Old Testament was translated into Greek for the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, and it was stored in the great library of Alexandria. So we know that, that these books and these prophecies were written at least about 250 years before Jesus' birth. Second reason, the Dead Sea Scrolls prove accuracy of transmission from before the time of Jesus. 
Now, before the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in the caves of Qumran, which is not far from Jerusalem, they were found in 1948. Before that, we had existing copies of the Septuagint, this Greek translation, um, dating back to around the 200s. But the earliest known copy of the Hebrew uh, Old Testament was dated in around 900 AD. Okay? So... You know, that's, that's a, a long time from when the, it was originally written, thousands of years. And skeptics assumed that the telephone game had happened. You, you remember the telephone game, right? You know, I whisper something into your ear, you know, like Janice went last Tuesday to Randall's to get some lettuce. And I whispered into your ear, you whisper into this person's ear and that person, that person. And by the time it gets to the end of the line, it's morphed, right? Into something like... On Tuesday, Randall asked Janet out for lettuce wraps, right? And that's how people get in trouble, that morphing along the gossip chain. And people just assumed, well, of course, this is what happened with the Bible until the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found copies of every book of the Old Testament except Esther. So now skeptics could take, you know, this this copy that was uh, written down that we have from about uh, 900, 1000 AD and lay it side by side with a copy that dated before the time of Jesus, carbon dated to somewhere between 150 and 100 BC. So here's a thousand years of copy transmission with nothing in between. Now skeptics could prove the telephone game had happened. Jeff Sheeler of US News and World Report writes, the scholars were astonished at what they found. He gives an instance uh, in the book of Isaiah. A complete book of Isaiah was found, which you'll find in the future weeks is important because the most, at, the most clear prophecies of the coming Messiah were in the book of Isaiah. So a complete book of Isaiah is found. Sheeler says this about it. Of the 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, scholars have found only 13 relatively small variations, a phrase or two missing or added, that do nothing to alter the meaning. And what they found is in book after book, this uncanny accuracy in the copies with a thousand years of copying in between from about 100, 150 BC to 900, 1000 AD. So much so Sir Frederick Kenyon, who's an archaeologist and actually the principal librarian for the British Museum, who knows manuscript evidence like no one else on the planet, writes this. The last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written has now been removed. So in summary, when someone comes up to you and says, oh, the Bible has been copied and translated so many times, so many errors have crept in. Tell them, do your homework. (laughs) Go do your homework. Don't just believe uh, word on the street on blind faith. Really look into it and see there are reasons to believe. Okay, so now we're ready to go back to the beginning and see what was foretold. What was foretold so that you and I could know the heart of the creator. You know, the story of the Bible is actually the story of a God who wants to be in relationship with the people he created for himself. And this is woven throughout the the Old Testament stories. But it's also the story of a humanity that tends to run and hide from God. And tends to do our will in ways way more than we want to seek God's will in ways. And as a result, we do evil to one another over and over again. 
The scriptures talk about how God is allowing this for now, for a time, but also has a plan to undo the effects of evil, one willing human heart at a time, one willing community at a time. And so all the way back in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, 4,000 years ago, God calls out Abraham and Sarah to form the first community of faith to begin to restore what was lost and broken. He calls Abraham to follow God by faith with this promise. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And look at this. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now that happened 2000 years before uh, the time of Christ. Now notice several things. First, God is claiming to be the God of all nations, right? I mean, that, that's significant. He's claiming that what he's doing is he's creating the Jewish nation, which came from Abraham and Sarah. He's creating this people of faith for one purpose only, not just to bless them, to bless the entire world. That is his purpose in it. And, and this is significant because if you read the sacred scriptures of the other world's religions, which, which I've done, if you do that, you'll find there is no other God who is claiming, first of all, to have revealed himself in actual history to, to real people who lived in a particular time and place. And most don't claim that they're talking to the whole earth. They're local deities. I'm not bagging on anyone. It's just the reality. Go read it for yourself. So this is significant, what's being claimed. So as the story of the Hebrew nation continues, what God claims is he's creating this this people, this nation that would live by faith and be a light, an example to all the nations. They would reveal God's love and faithfulness to people who follow him. The Jewish people were to preserve his words, his law. In fact, an entire class of people, the scribes, lived only to do this, which explains the ridiculous accuracy in copying the Bible down through the years. So from the beginning, there is this promise to bless all the nations on earth. And as as time goes on, it begins to be revealed. It's going to happen through this Messiah who is to come. And through this Messiah, who will be descended from Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob, and then through Jesse and David and Solomon, and, and the entire lineage of the Messiah is spelled out over the years. But starting with Abraham, God foreshadows exactly what he's going to do. And this is amazing, because what we see of the character of God is God is as much a dramatic artist as he is the engineer of all time and space. God actually has Abraham act out what history will reveal. So we see Abraham and Sarah believe God's promise and they leave their home in modern day Iraq, what's modern day Iraq, and they go to what we would now uh, call the land of Israel. Now, the problem is Abraham and Sarah at this point are barren. They can't have kids. So they're supposed to bless the entire world through this nation, but they can't even pop out one rug rat. They can't even have one child. And, and God tells them this is going to happen if they'll just go to this land. They go to this land and they wait 10 years, 15 years. They get impatient. Even though God says, wait, be patient. They get impatient and they screw it up. And that's a story for another day. But eventually... 
they have a son, Isaac, the fulfillment of the promise to bless the world through his lineage. Then God does something very strange. Take a look. Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I'd be going, oh, hang on a second, God. You know, okay, leaving my land and my family, I can do that. You know, coming, being faithful to you, being patient, all that. But what are you talking about? Sacrifice my son? Now, here's something you have to understand before you freak out. This is a test. This is only a test. Moses, who probably wrote this down, wants to make sure we know this from the start. And he says, God tested Abraham. And this is because God had made it clear to Moses that they're not to sacrifice their children like the gods of the Canaanites demanded. So as we'll see, this is a test of Abraham's faith, but it's also a dramatic acting out of prophecy. Of course, Abraham didn't know this at the time. You know, another interesting side note, across all cultures of history just about, there's been this common practice that a sacrifice had to be made to to pay for our wrongs, our, our sins. There was this reminder that rebellion against God causes death, physical and spiritual separation from God. And it has to be paid for. And interestingly, this is not found just in the ancient Hebrew culture, but in just about every culture across the globe in ancient civilization up until the time of Jesus. Then bizarrely, it stopped in Judaism and in many other cultures as well. Okay, so the text goes on in Genesis 22. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Note that. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him his two servants and his son Isaac. When he cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. All right, stick with me. Follow me on this. This is important. So God says, go to the region of Moriah to this specific mountain that I'm going to show you. And so Abraham gets two of his servants and Isaac loads up his donkey with the wood and they travel for three days to this specific place. Now, why in the world did God have him travel so long and so far to this specific place? Well, we get a clue in Second Chronicles, which was written in about 900 B.C., Where it says, then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father, David. Okay, so Mount Moriah is in Jerusalem, which had had not been built yet, right? There was probably a small city called Salem somewhere near there. But Jerusalem, as they knew it in David's time, we know it today, wasn't there yet. So this is where God is telling him to go. Now take a look at, at this picture for a second, okay? This is Jerusalem, modern-day Jerusalem. I'm actually standing on the Mount of Olives when I took this picture. Okay, and the Mount of Olives, and actually three mountain ranges run north-south across the picture. It goes down into the Kidron Valley and comes up to that wall, which is the old city wall of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, which is located on Mount Moriah. 
runs north-south up right outside the walls to what's now called Golgotha. That all is Mount Moriah. Then it goes down on the backside, which is now the Wailing Wall, and then comes up, and the mount you see at the top is Mount Zion. So when you hear these mountains, Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, it's where Jerusalem is located. So this is where God directs Abraham to, to go. Are you seeing?